Welcome to Under the Oaks. I'm Lauren Thompson. And I'm Pastor Trensari. Glad you could join us today. We are on episode number 23. And we are drawing close to the end of our series that we've been uh, looking at, What Does the Bible Say? Uh, We've got two more episodes of that. And then uh, in the future, we've got all sorts of different things planned for Under the Oaks. So uh, if you've enjoyed what we've done thus far, uh, there's a lot more to come. Uh, We'll have interviews and different topical studies that we'll be doing in the future. But today we're going to be looking at eschatology or study of the last things. And again, there's a lot that could be said on this topic. We're going to try to cover all of it in a general sense and maybe come back and hit some of these things more specifically in the future on future episodes. But today we'll, we'll just uh, at least try to cover as much as we can. So, you know, when we talk about last things, uh, we tend to think about end times right away. Well, that's, we'll get to that. But the first thing we want to think about is what happens you know, at the moment of death. I mean, because that's really kind of the last things in our lifetime, or at least in our our lifespan that we're going to have to deal with unless Christ returns in the meantime, which, of course, we hope and we pray that takes place. So what takes place at the moment of death, according to the Bible, according to the scriptures? In Ecclesiastes 12, it says, the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. So if you go way, way back in our earlier episodes, we talked about man and how he is not just a body, but an eternal soul. And body and soul are united in the person. At the moment of death, the soul and body are separated. As it says there in Ecclesiastes, the dust returns to the earth. From dust you came to dust you shall return. As we think about those words from Genesis and also that we hear on Ash Wednesday. So the body returns to the ground but the soul returns to God who gave it. Of course, this would be true of believers. For unbelievers, the soul would go to hell, which I guess I'm getting ahead of myself. Uh, you know, and this is acknowledged even by St. Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, where he, he says, we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So he understood that at death, the soul went to be with the Lord. Now, of course, what happens uh, to the body? Uh, is it just completely gone? Is it never to be seen again? No, we believe in the bodily resurrection on the last day. God will raise our fleshly bodies, resurrected bodies, glorified bodies. But again, we'll, we'll talk more about that in just a second. In Luke 23, Jesus uh, told the thief on the cross next to him, Truly I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Some people believe in, in a concept called soul sleep. And the, the, the idea behind this, uh, roughly, is that when you die, that your, your soul goes into a state of sleep, and then you awake at the resurrection on Judgment Day. It's simply not, not the way the Bible describes it. In fact, you know, in the book of Revelation, it talks about the souls of those who had been martyred, being there under the altar in heaven, and crying out to the Lord. So the picture of the rich man and Lazarus would certainly picture them already in heaven or in hell. Again, Jesus' words to the thief on the cross here would seem to imply that at the moment of the death, you're either in heaven or you're in hell uh, immediately. So it's not, uh, it doesn't seem to support this idea of soul sleep. Now, to be fair, to be fair, uh, you know, when we die, you know, our whole concept of time is based on this idea of past, present, future. And, and 
that's the way we frame our entire life, our entire, entire being here in this world, and understandably so. That's the reference point for everything. Uh, when we die, is it possible that we're perhaps just outside of time? You know, like God himself is outside of time. Uh, maybe. I don't know. Like, so I'm not going to go too far into that one. But Revelation uh, chapter 14, uh, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Uh, in other words, uh, it's a blessing to die. Well, why would it be a blessing? Well, because you're with the Lord. And we, we often say this at the death of a loved one. Uh, they're in a better place now. They're with the Lord or whatever. So th- that's a certainly a scriptural way of speaking. Again, we'll talk more about that when we come to you know, look at what uh, St. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4. In 1 Peter chapter 3, Jesus, it says, Jesus went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey. And of course, this verse is always understood to, as uh, his descent into hell. So there it talks about uh, the souls or the spirits in prison, in hell, uh, because of their former disobedience. So they're already there. They're not waiting for some future time to go there. They're already there. That's the point there. So, you know, just from, from these verses, we could say that when a person dies, his immortal soul leaves his mortal body. The soul of the believer is at once received into heaven. The soul of the unbeliever immediately finds itself in hell. Now we can start thinking about, well, what about when Christ returns? What's going to happen then? Because that's a, you know, a topic that everybody's fascinated with, infatuated with, and uh, really wants to know more about. And I think it's, uh, this is a topic also where there's a lot of variety in Christendom today. You, you've got all sorts of different teachings regarding what's going to happen when Christ returns. When is that going to be? What's that going to look like? What does it mean? You know, what's, what's the events that will precede and follow that? So what does the Bible teach about Christ's second coming? In Acts chapter 1, Jesus' ascension into heaven, it says that he was, he was uh, taken up into the heavens and a cloud hid, hid him from the disciples' sight. But then the angel says to those disciples, it says, This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come back in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And here the idea is visibly. He'll come in the clouds. Everyone will see him. And of course, um, <laughs> There are people who, who wonder, how is that possible? How can everybody see him? We know that the earth is round, and if he comes back in one area, how could somebody on the other side of the earth see him? And people just can't fathom that he could be visible to everyone. So, you know, some people have speculated, well, now with the age of technology, it's possible. We've got cameras up all over the world. Uh, it'll be broadcast on YouTube or something. So this is how everybody's going to visibly see him return. Uh, no, we don't have a problem with it. If God wants to be visible to all people at the same time, not a problem for God. So, uh, you know, I wouldn't think too hard about that one. And Revelation chapter 1 says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. Again, there we have uh, this idea that he will come visibly. Now, uh, what is that coming of Jesus going to be about? Uh, he's going to be coming in the clouds. In Matthew 25, Jesus said, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. So when he comes again, it will be in glory. You know, in his first coming, he, he took on human flesh in great humility. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. And to the eye, 
people say, oh, looks just like another guy, that Jesus guy, you know, whatever. Uh, obviously, we get glimpses into his glory, especially like when we think about the Mount of Transfiguration, where Peter, James, and John, for a brief moment, see Jesus shining in all of his brilliance. Uh, his clothes became dazzling white and his face shone like the sun. Uh, but when he comes again, it'll be in glory. Uh, there'll be no mistaking, this is Jesus. Even those who have pierced him will, will understand. Now, Acts 17 Verse 31 says, God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world. So we would say that when we see Christ again, it'll be judgment day. And that's consistent uh, with, with the rest of the scriptures. However, just so you are aware, there are a variety of different teachings within Christendom, and there have been for a long time. And by that I mean, you, you may have heard of the term millennialism. Well, millennialism is basically this idea that uh, Christ will reign for a thousand years. And it's based on a reading of Revelation chapter 20, which talks about the thousand-year reign of Christ. And to the millennialist, this is all coming still in the future. Now, again, we can get into a discussion on this. uh, But there, if we look at the context and understanding that Revelation often uses uh, numbers in a symbolic sense, Um, It's interesting that people who don't take the literal parts of the Bible literally will take the symbolic parts literally, but not the literal parts they'll take symbolically. You know what I'm saying? Like, so, um, but the reason being, there's a couple of reasons why millennialism is so popular amongst Christians, uh, a a lot of Christians. And and part of it is this idea that uh, Christ is going to come and set up a heaven on earth that uh, he's going to reign visibly and uh, that there's going to be this sort of time of peace and prosperity on the earth, a sort of a, a earthly utopia. And this is a, a, a thought that has plagued people actually since before Jesus' time. The, the notion of millennialism kind of comes from Jewish sources, in fact. So uh, as we think about Jesus in his earthly ministry, why was it that it was such a scandal uh, to so many people when he rides into to Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, everybody's cheering him on, but when they realize uh, soon that he's not going to be the earthly kind of Messiah that they had hoped for, that he's going to liberate them from Roman rule, that they suddenly turn on him, and then they're shouting, crucify him. So there's always this, this hope for an earthly kingdom, an earthly reign, Uh, an earthly prosperity and this kind of heaven on earth, this utopian idea. And that's been around for a long time and it's plagued Christians. Some of the early church fathers, in fact, were millennialists. That's not to say all of them were. And uh, in fact, then many after them would condemn it as uh, being false, a false teaching. But uh, it, it comes in part because there are passages you know, that are kind of strange to read when we look at Ezekiel or or Daniel or the book of Revelation. And uh, people will see this idea in there because see, it says a thousand year reign. And it talks about, uh, you know, believers reigning with Christ during the thousand years and and, uh, Satan being bound during those thousand years. And all of that they see is somewhere off in the future. And they, they picture it, you know, as this sort of earthly utopian. Now, 
even then, uh, when you talk about millennialism, it's split. There's not really a unified version of it because nobody can agree on the text. Some, some are what we would call premillennialists. They would say Christ will return at the beginning of the thousand years and reign on earth. And then there's this seven-year period called the tribula- Great Tribulation, and they believe that there, there'll either be a rapture at the beginning, middle, or end of that. Uh, and again, I'm, I'm not, uh, this is not an exhaustive, we'll have to come back and look at this a lot more closely. And then there's post-millennialism uh, that basically says that Christ will return at the end of the thousand years, and then there's the rapture and so on. But even there, they don't agree. So this is a popular thought out there, and it, it influences a lot of thought, a lot of political activism. You know, if, if it's our job to set up this earthly kingdom, then, uh, you know, we need to sort of fight the powers to establish it or whatever. Or, uh, you know, you'll often see on television these commercials about sending uh, Jewish people back to Israel because, especially with the founding of the nation of Israel or the state of Israel in 1948, boom, this, this idea really, again, took off full force because a lot of people saw this as fulfillment of prophecy of the Bible. And it's very, very popular amongst evangelical Christians when you think about like Hal Lindsey or Tim LaHaye with the Left Behind series, even the Schofield Reference Bible, which was so popular for, uh, for many people, it's, it's all taught in there. And again, the, the premise that you have to, to believe is that all of these events are somewhere off in the future, where we would say, not so fast. In those passages, is there anything that would necessitate us believing that these are somewhere off in the future? rather than viewing it as happening even now. I mean, we are living in the last times. That's what the teaching, the consistent teaching of the New Testament is. Uh, the New Testament era, the, the age of the church, if you will, is the ushering in of the last times. Uh, you know, the earliest Christians believed that Christ's return was imminent. It was coming at any time. Some were quitting their jobs and, and so on and so forth because they figure, what's the point of working? Jesus is going to return soon. If you read St. Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, both of them, he's, he's addressing some of these issues. And there, there was questions as to what happened to those who died in the meantime. Where are they? And Paul addresses those issues in those letters as well. But it, what we read in Revelation 20, there's nothing there that we can't understand as taking place right now. So, you know, for instance, uh, Jesus would say, now the ruler of this world is cast out. Satan himself is bound. He's like a dog on a chain. I think I've described this before. Uh, Can he hurt you? Sure. But like a dog, if you go within his chain reach, it's going to hurt you. Yeah. I mean, so that's the temptation for us, right? Oh, look, we can pet the dog and then you get bit. Um, But the victory is certain. Jesus has won the victory. In fact, the entire book of Revelation is a book of comfort, so people see these seven visions that St. John has, and they want to see them as this consecutive things that are going to unfold over the course of time, where we would say they are seven different perspectives on the same timeline, uh, on the same events. They're showing, yes, there is this, this great time of falling away. There's this tribulation. There's all this struggle and war and strife and hatred. And G- in fact, Jesus himself would say this, in the last days, the love of most will grow, grow cold. There'll be wars and rumors of wars and, and, you know, all of these things have to happen and then the end will come. So, you know, there's nothing there that would say that this is not happening now. And then it talks about those who have uh, taken part in the first resurrection uh, and who, of whom the second death has no uh, power over them. I think I'm just 
doing this off the top of my head. I think I've got that right, but you, you can correct me if I'm wrong. Um, well, that's certainly true of believers. I mean, uh, Jesus would say, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has passed from death to life. So there's a resurrection. You who are dead in your sins and trespasses, God has made alive, St. Paul will say. So, you know, there's, there's a certain sense in which we as believers have already taken place in a resurrection. We are little Lazaruses who've been called forth from the tomb. And then there's this idea about reigning with Christ, where the millennialists would see in Revelation 20 this reference to an earthly reign with Christ, you know, sort of this time of peace or prosperity or whatever. Uh, St. Paul would say we are already reigning with Christ as believers, uh, you know, in, in the heavenly realms, we're reigning with him. So Christ's kingdom is not of this world, Jesus himself would say. It's a spiritual kingdom. And yes, he is ruling over all things even now for the sake of his church. And as believers, we are reigning with him. This is all what the New Testament says. So again, there's nothing there that would, would push this, uh, would necessitate a future interpretation of Revelation 20. And this, this is by no means the only text referenced by millennialists. Uh, when we talk about the rapture, they'll talk about 1 Thessalonians 4. Uh, but even there, when, when we read it, uh, there's nothing there that would necessitate some sort of, you know, dual resurrection or um, uh, this, this separate time of rapture for some people and then some are left behind. Uh, so, so uh, you know, Matthew's uh, gospel about Jesus, I mean, Jesus talking about how uh, two will be in the field, one will be taken, one will be left. It's always assumed that the believer is taken. When you read the context there, it's actually the unbeliever who's taken in judgment. So, I mean, a, a lot of these verses are are being read into. And uh, the, the only thing I can say about that is that very early on, we talked about hermeneutical principles. We talked about the analogy of faith, allowing the sum total of the scriptures to speak on any given verse. We don't pull a verse out of context and say, well, here's what I feel like Jesus is telling me, or here's what I feel like God is telling me here. We let the, the clear passages in, um, you know, shed light on the more difficult passages. We don't do it the opposite way. We don't say, well, here's what we think this one is saying, so therefore we have to read that into every other verse. And unfortunately, with, with millennialism, that seems to be what the tendency is to read that viewpoint into the, even the more clear, precise uh, you know, passages which clearly talk about when Jesus returns, it's judgment day. And so it sets up a lot of different ideas which can be, in fact, dangerous uh, within the millennialistic churches. Very often the gospel is taken a back seat. It's not considered the only means of grace. Uh, there's this idea that, well, if you, if you miss it the first go around, you always got a second chance. There's, there's this um, infatuation with trying to read the signs and interpret where we're at in this spectrum. And, uh, you know, there's all sorts of variations. Again, maybe in the future we'll do a whole uh, episode just on this topic alone because it's impossible for us to cover all the nuanced variations of this at this point. But again, there's this also uh, idea that it's our job to um, sort of establish this earthly utopian idea. There's this, um, I suppose, activism towards Israel, sending the Jewish people back to Israel because they're somehow connected you know, God will bless those who bless them, and that somehow this is their eternal inheritance, and uh, in the end, they're all going to be saved. And there's a lot of passages that, that are kind of uh, read that way, um, but the scriptures themselves don't necessarily lend credibility to that interpretation. So, 
I think here is one of those topics where it's more important than ever that we allow the sum total of all the scriptures speak in on this topic so that we are not confused. So, yeah, I mean, that's probably what I would say on this for now. Like, again, it's, it's influenced a lot of people in a lot of different ways. And to be fair, there have been Lutherans in history who have been millennialists. So Spainer, the father of pietism, had millennialistic views. Uh, Wilhelm Leia uh, uh, was pretty influential on the Iowa Synod here in the United States and influential on confessional Lutheranism in general in, in, in many positive ways, but he himself was nevertheless a millennialist. However, the, the Lutheran confessions themselves reject millennialism. So uh, as, as I would say, the scriptures do as well. But again, I think to be fair, uh, we, we'd, we would want to address this topic uh, on its own as well, just to show you that this is not just an opinion, that the scriptures really are not unclear. I mean, it's not a matter of the scriptures being unclear, but I think that the fact that you have so many variations on this position of millennialism uh, is a testimony that there's much confusion even amongst them about what, what is actually the teaching of the scriptures. So, as I said, the Bible's consistent. When we see Jesus again, it's going to be judgment day, period. That's really the main point that I'm trying to make here. Mark 13, Jesus said, Concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. And of course, Jesus would say this in his state of humiliation, the time during which he does not always or make full use of his divine attributes. It's not that according to his divine nature, Jesus doesn't know when judgment is. He, he does, but according to his human nature, in his state of humiliation, he would say that's not, you know, not for him to know at that point. So, uh, that being said, you find that within uh, many of the branches of evangelical Christianity, there's this fascination with uh, the, the end times, the rapture, all of this stuff, and even predicting when that's going to happen. Now, it wasn't that many years ago, I think there was a radio televangel- or t- radio evangelist guy, I think his name is Harold Camping, you can look it up. Uh, he had predicted a specific date uh, for Christ's return. And uh, people were selling their uh, houses, they were quitting their jobs, you know, whatever, uh, because they figured they weren't going to need it anymore. Well, as you, as you might well expect, the day came and went. And then so he said, well, you know, I might have... I might have got the calculations slightly off. It, it'll be another eight months or whatever it was. And then that day came and went. And uh, I guess he was exposed for the fraud that he was. And uh, it, sadly, he, he died not too long after that. So, um, you know, but that kind of prediction is, is certainly been popular for many, many, many uh, years. And he wasn't the first one to do this. Um, there was uh, the, the book's always trying to predict the, the, the times. I think it was John Hagee, the seven blood moons or whatever, the blood moon books or whatever those were. Uh, there's, there's all sorts of them. I mean, if you go into a Christian bookstore, there are shelves full of these types of books and people really are infatuated with it and really, really get into it. But when it comes to the end times, the message of the scriptures is pretty consistent. Watch, be waiting, be prayerful. You don't know when it's going to happen. It could come as a thief in the night. It will come as a thief in the night. So, you know, it's, it's not a matter of trying to read the tea leaves, so to speak, and try to figure out where we are on that spectrum. The point is it could happen at any time, at any time. And we are to be ready 
always. When we see Christ again, it'll be in glory. It'll be judgment day. So, uh, as Peter says in 2 Peter 3, the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. So, uh, when we see Christ again, we'll see then that there will be a new heavens in the earth. It says the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. So, there is a certain sense where um, the heavens and the earth that we have now are temporary. Uh, they'll be remade or made anew. There's, there's some variations on that too, whether it's complete annihilation or there's sort of a, a, re, a refurbishing, if you will, taking what's there and just taking the materials and, and reforming it or whatever. But as Peter says in 1 Peter 4, he says, the end of all things is at hand. Uh, the end of the ages has come upon us. That's where we're at now. We are in the last times. There's nothing that we're waiting for that must happen first before Jesus can return. And that's kind of the dangers of millennialism. There's always this, this idea, well, I've still got time because this needs to happen, this needs to happen yet. No, uh, it could happen at any time. All of the things that Jesus speaks of uh, when we read through the Gospels and, um, you know, as the New Testament writers put forth, it, we're, we're there. I mean, it could come at any time. So, again, just to sort of summarize uh, Christ will return visibly in glory on the last day, known only to God, which will mark the end of the world, and it'll be in judgment. That'll be judgment day. So, the Bible especially speaks about Jesus' second coming in Matthew chapter 24, as I mentioned in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, which is often used uh, as a reference for teaching the rapture. And to be fair, it does speak about a rapture. It just talks about believers being caught up in the air uh, with those who have fallen asleep in the Lord, when Jesus returns, he'll bring them with, and then there will be the bodily resurrection, and we'll, we'll be caught up with our loved ones who have gone before us in the faith. Uh, it'll be a joyous reunion, and, you know, Paul says, therefore, comfort one another with these words. It, it's not a, it's not a, oh, you know, here, here's the first round, and you better hope that you didn't miss out, or, you know, you got, you know, whatever. Second Thessalonians 2 also talks about uh, Christ's second coming. 2 Timothy chapter 3, 2 Peter chapter 3, and Revelation chapter 20, which again would be worthwhile uh, us going through uh, line by line in a future episode because I don't want you to think, well, you know, you're, this is just your opinion, your interpretation. Uh, this, this is like all the other issues that we've put forward so far. It's, it's something that's pretty incredibly consistent in the scriptures. So it's not just a matter of, well, that's your opinion. This is our interpretation. No. Uh, I think as you look at the evidence and the facts, you'll see uh, that the position put forth by millennialism is, is really untenable. So we, we reject, therefore, as unbiblical, confessional Lutherans, I should say, reject as unbiblical all forms of millennialism, that is the teaching that Jesus will reign visibly over an earthly kingdom for a thousand years before he comes to judge the living and the dead. Some other references to look at John chapter 18, 33 through 36, Matthew 24, 36 through 42, Matthew 25, 31 through 33. Uh, so uh, that we're going to leave that there for now, but certainly there's much more that could be said and should be said. So by no means am I claiming to have a, com you know, a comprehensive coverage of that topic, n nor have I answered or you know, refuted every possible argument that might be put forward. But for now, we're going to move on. So, what does the Bible teach about the resurrection of the body? You know, the bodily resurrection is something that we confess in the creeds. 
Uh, So what are we talking about? John chapter 5, Jesus said, An hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and coming out. So all the dead will rise, as Jesus says. The hour is coming. All of them who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come out. In Job chapter 19, uh, way back in the Old Testament, probably in the age of the patriarchs, Job lived. And uh, Job made this beautiful confession of the bodily resurrection. Way back then, he says, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. So there, Job says, in my flesh I'll see God. So there is certainly a beautiful confession of the bodily resurrection already in the Old Testament. And of course, the Sadducees were the, the, the branch of the Jewish leadership that denied the bodily resurrection. The Pharisees believed in it. In uh, Philippians chapter 3, Paul says, Christ will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. So at the resurrection, we will have a glorified body. Now, everybody wants to know, what does that mean? How old am I going to be? Am I going to have wrinkles? Am I going to, if I die as an old person, am I going to look like an old person? If I die as a young, you know, what does this mean? So the short answer is, I don't know. You know, I'm not God. Uh, And the Bible doesn't give us a, a ton of details as far as what that looks like. But I will say, when we think about Christ's glorified body, On the one hand, uh, he's only recognized when he wants to be recognized. And yet, when he is recognized, people recognize him as Jesus. So, I mean, there they can see the nail marks, but that's, I mean, for for our sake, really. And when we see him again, we'll see the nail marks as well, because uh, he will return with the same body that he rose with, right? But it is a glorified body. And what that means is that it will be free from the ravages and the effects of the sinful fallen world. So when we think about, you know, the effects of living in a sinful fallen world, uh, the corruption, the decay of our bodies, the sicknesses, the aging process itself, uh, no longer has an impact on us. So a uh, glorified body, uh, I don't know what age that would be. Ageless, I suppose. But, um, you, you know, we, we tend to think in terms of what we know. Uh, now we're talking outside of the realm of the knowing, right? Um And we could say the same thing about heaven. There's a lot of people have questions about heaven. What will it be like? Unfortunately, you know, and maybe fortunately, the Bible has more to say about what heaven won't be like than what it will be like, which is understandable. It's beyond our comprehension. How do you describe to somebody something that's beyond their wildest dreams? Or, I mean, as great as the most beautiful place on earth that you could imagine, as the most peaceful time you've ever had in your life, whatever it might be, it'll be better. I mean, so, so there's no comparison. What, what can you describe that would do it justice? Or what, what words could you use? Certainly, we get glimpses, at least in uh, somewhat figurative language in the book of Revelation. And, you know, uh, some of those images, we, pff, they're, they're beyond our comprehension. They sound strange to, our, to our, our way of thinking. But like I said, it only makes sense that God is God and we are not. And, uh, you know, some of these things are just, they're kind of a mystery. They're beyond our 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 scope of knowing at this point. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul also says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. So 
even those, let's say, if you're alive at Christ's second coming and you don't have to die and, you know, you're alive when he comes, even then you'll have a glorified body. You'll be changed in the twinkling of an eye. So, again, the idea of a glorified body. So, on the last day, Christ will raise up all the dead, reuniting their souls with their bodies, a resurrected body, a glorified body, the bodies of believers will be glorified. What do the scriptures teach then, on the other hand, about final judgment? 2 Corinthians 5 says, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, that sounds kind of scary. And rightfully so. I mean, uh, give an account for everything that you've done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, again, we have to understand these types of passages in light of the rest of the passages. So, uh, in terms of what is good in God's sight, there's only one who's good, it's God. Uh, There's only one who's righteous, his son, Jesus Christ. And yet, in him, through faith in him, we are clothed in his righteousness. As far as the east is from the west, so far has God removed our sins and trespasses from us. So, for believers, the only thing that remains are the good works done in faith. So, uh, you know, sometimes people wonder and they come across a verse like this and they say, well, I hope I've done enough good. As if there's this sort of ledger that God keeps. Here's the bad side or it's like the scale. And you hope that you, you can tip it in your favor by doing more good than evil. Well, to to see it that way would really be to teach works righteousness, is to negate the grace of God in Christ, to trample the gospel, in fact. So that's not what's being spoken of here, but certainly the point there is that unbelievers will be left with the judgment of God because they've spurned the forgiveness and the grace that comes through Jesus Christ, and therefore they're left standing before God with their works. And guess what? All of those works are nothing but filthy rags. And so, therefore, uh, they must face the wrath of God. Now, on the other hand, when we look at the attitude of Christians throughout the centuries, the earliest Christians, what was their attitude towards Judgment Day? Were they uh, in living in fear and trembling? Uh, no, no, they were actually looking forward to that day, you know, hastening its coming. They they longed for that day. They knew that it was ultimately their deliverance from this veil of tears. So, um, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So, it's not a day that we need to fear. It's a day we need to be prepared for, and it's a day we look forward to in faith, and we are prepared through faith in Christ. Now, Acts 17, it says, God has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, namely Christ. So, again, what does it mean to judge the world in righteousness? Well, again, uh, as we look at Paul's letter to the Romans, where he talks about uh, righteousness is now revealed apart from the works of the law, righteousness which is from God by faith, through faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, we, talk about, we talked about that before, the imputed righteousness of Christ. Uh, when we have that, when we are clothed in Christ's righteousness by faith, uh, we need not fear judgment day. We can look for it with longing. John chapter 12, Jesus said, the word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. So, you know, here we would see all of the scriptures in a certain sense will stand in judgment 
on, on judgment day, especially against unbelievers. Now, you can say the law certainly will stand in judgment, right? Because it says, do this, and we didn't do it. Or it says, don't do that, and we did it. So that certainly would be true. But even the gospel will stand in judgment of unbelievers on the last day. You, you know, the church held out the gospel. It proclaimed the good news to you, and you spurned it. You rejected it. You thought it was foolishness. You mocked it. You ridiculed it. Even the gospel will stand in judgment. So sometimes I think when we think about missions, we, we think about this idea that we're out there to uh, convert the world, save souls, we're soul winning or whatever. Uh, that's God's business. We preach the gospel and what, how God works through that gospel and what he does through it, that's his business. But we preach the gospel, even if it doesn't seem like it's bearing any fruit, because that word will even stand in judgment on the last day against those who spurned it and rejected it. So it, it always serves a purpose. In Mark 16, of course, at the end of Mark's gospel, we hear, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. So we know that the last day, uh, for those who are baptized and believe in Jesus, uh, there's no condemnation, there's nothing to fear, but uh, those who will be condemned are condemned solely on the basis of unbelief. So it's only unbelief that condemns, right? Because Jesus has made reconciliation, he's made propitiation for the sins of all people, he's made atonement for the sins of all people, and uh, so all sins in, some, in, in a certain sense have been paid for, which means that if you reject the gospel, you reject that payment and you're left in your sins, Luke chapter 16, we, 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 here's the kind of the account of the rich man and Lazarus. Uh, of course, uh, if you go and you read that account, the rich man uh, feasted sumptuously in this life. He had all the finest things and finest clothing. And meanwhile, there's this poor man, Lazarus, who laid at his gate begging. The dogs came and licked his sores. And uh, at death, the reality that seemed completely opposite of what was the way it looked in this life is revealed. Lazarus, the poor beggar with the sores, is carried to Abraham's side by the angels, and uh, the rich man, who's nameless, is now in the torments of hell. And of course, we get a, a picture of those torments of hell there. It says, in Hades being in torment, the rich man lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. It's kind of interesting there that even in hell, the rich man sees Lazarus as his servant. You know, by the way, send that poor beggar over here. I need some water down here. For I am in anguish in this flame. Uh, not, a, not a pleasant picture, right? The torment, the eternal torment. Uh, the picture of flame, and uh, people, people want to deny the existence of hell. They would rather believe that in the end, everyone goes to heaven. Heaven is for real, hell not so real. I mean, you can find books by, um, you know, confessing Christians about this matter where they would deny the existence of hell. Uh, it wasn't uh, that long ago, there was a, a popular writer that kind of wrote this premise that in the end, God wins and everybody's kind of saved. Uh, Matthew 10, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So, hell is for real. And um, 
this is kind of a, a wake-up call, a warning that we are to live in repentance, that we are to live in faith in Jesus. Uh, if we think that these are just um, taunts with no backbone behind them, that they're just, you know, sort of meant to to scare us a little bit, to scare us straight, so to speak, but there's not really any substance behind it. Not true. And, and we get uh, various passages that, that demonstrate that in the scriptures. So, on the last day, Christ will judge all people. Believers will accompany Christ with both their bodies and soul into heaven. Unbelievers will be condemned, both their bodies and souls, to eternal torment and shame in hell. Now, we're going to, again, th- there's more that can be said. By, by no means am I trying to present you with an exhaustive uh, discussion of all the, the passages that would speak to this issue. So, inevitably, somebody will say, well, you, you didn't talk about this or you left out that. Well, I get it. So hopefully, you know, we can, we can talk more about this in the future. Now, what does the Bible say about the blessedness of heaven? 1 John chapter 3, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. So, uh, in one way, the blessedness of heaven is to be in God's presence and to see him in his unveiled glory. Remember that as sinners, no sinner can see God in his unveiled glory and live. We can find that throughout the Old Testament and even into the New Testament. So God comes to us veiled in human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. In him, the, the uh, fullness of the deity dwells bodily. But again, uh, we, we won't see God in his completely unveiled glory Uh, You know, we get glimpses, say, like on the Mount of Transfiguration, but in heaven, we will see him as he is. So that's that's wonderful. And we we can only imagine, right? I mean, we can only imagine what that might be like. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So the point is, uh, you know, right now we don't have all the answers. We don't know everything. We know what God has given us, and that's sufficient. But there are many things that he hasn't told us about. You know, and, and heaven is one of those things where, you know, uh, we, we'll, we'll, we'll know when we get there. And also even uh, concerning himself, I mean, we, we know God by what he's revealed to us. Uh, in creation to a certain extent, but mostly, uh, most importantly, through the revealed scriptures, through the Bible, where God tells us how we're saved and his great love for us in Christ. But in heaven, we'll possess the fullness of the divine image, which we lost in the fall, which is being renewed in believers, but it's never complete until we reach heaven, which means we will have a blissful knowledge of God. We'll have that perfect righteousness and holiness Uh, which man was created and intended to have at the very beginning, which Adam and Eve had until the fall into sin. So that's where we'll be, it'll be paradise restored, if you will. Psalm 16, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So again, we're going to be free uh, from all of the troubles that we know in this world. We'll, We'll know God. Uh, it'll be joyous and blissful and uh, joy beyond any comprehension, beyond compare. Like we, we don't, we can't even, we get a little slight foretaste of it now and glimpses, but uh, you can't even describe it, this indescribable joy. Revelation 21, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. So, 
the absence of all of the effects of sin, right? No more troubles, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more crying, all of those things. It sounds wonderful, right? I mean, uh, we think about this, this life and all the struggles and hardships. It seems as we go from one to the next. Uh, we get brief glimpses or moments of joy here and there, uh, but it's fleeting. There's joy eternal. Romans 8, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So again, uh, you know, there's just no way that we can comprehend uh, the indescribable joy and glory that will be eternal, without end. I remember as a kid trying to fathom eternity, trying to wrap my head around the idea of living forever. And it, I'll, I'll, I'll be truthful, it freaked me out. Like, I was, I, I would, you know, I don't know that I'm comfortable with that. That sounds scary. I, I mean, we, we kind of know life as a beginning and an end, but, you know, you'd think about the longest time as a kid. I remember, you know, uh, what's a long time? 100 years, that's a long time. Nope, that's, uh, it would keep going. Well, what about 500 years? Nope, it would keep going. What about a th- thousand? Nope, keep going. A million years? Nope, keep going. Well, at a certain point, that just gets to be more than you can even wrap your mind around. But again, that's that's trying to, to, to reason all of that or think about it in the context of our world, the concept of time. And uh, it's uh, something that a kid will do, I guess. But uh, I've gotten more comfortable with it. And I, I see the, the, the joy and the pleasure that it holds out to us as being more desirable the older I get, I think, right? You know, it's far better to depart and be with the Lord, as Paul says. And I think that's where, at the end of the day, that's where we come down with this. So, the blessedness of heaven consists in this, that we shall be with God, see him as he is. We shall possess the fullness of the divine image, consisting in blissful knowledge of God and in perfect righteousness and holiness. We shall be free from all troubles. We shall live in eternal and indescribable joy and glory. Now, uh, just a final thought. To whom will God give this eternal life or this eternal glory. John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, his only begotten son, that's the translation I prefer, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So whoever believes in Jesus as their savior has this. They have this eternal life. Even now, Death doesn't get the last say. It doesn't get a hold on to you. Death has lost its stinger, St. Paul would say. So I think sometimes we tend to think of eternal life as only a future thing. But even now, you are partakers of the divine life in Christ. Uh, Eternal life is yours. Now, obviously, you still live in this veil of tears. You still uh, must contend with the world, the devil, and even your own sinful flesh. But you are an heir of life, eternal life now. You're co-heirs with Christ, the New Testament says. So that's important to remember. Matthew 24, Jesus said, the one who endures to the end will be saved. So this eternal life will be given to believers, but uh, only to believers. I mean, it doesn't do you any good to have been a believer at one time. Yeah, I used to go to church. I used to, when I was a kid, you know, we would go to church. And yeah, I still believe those things. Uh, you know, anybody can say that. You can comfort yourself with that and say, well, I'm, I'm fine. You know, yeah, I know who Jesus is and whatever. But uh, we want to talk about enduring um, the preservation of faith, the endurance of faith, which again is, is the work of God, but he, he, he preserves us through the gospel in word and sacrament. So it's not good enough just to have been a believer at one point. We want to be a believer at the end. 
when we die or when Christ returns. And then, of course, John 3.36, Jesus said, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. Uh, you know, there you have the direct parallel, whoever does not believe in the Son. He says obey here, but, uh, you know, the idea is also who does not believe in him. And the unpleasant reality, the wrath of God remains on him. So you reject the payment for your sins, guess what? That leaves you with your sins on your own. And that's not a good place to be because now the, God, the wrath of God remains on him. So uh, to whom does God give the eternal life? To believers and to believers only. That's the teaching of the scriptures. Uh, that's not my opinion. That's not a pious opinion of the church or whatever. That's the clear teaching of Jesus and the Bible. So again, there's probably a lot more that could be said, but this is a topic that we will definitely revisit in a future episode somewhere down the line. Uh, we've got one more episode in this series, so we do hope that you'll join us. On behalf of Under the Oaks, this is Pastor Trent Sari. And I'm Lauren Thompson. We'll see you next time.